happy Saturday. It's January 29th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday, the last Saturday of January. Ashley, I'm so excited to be here with you today. As always, Michael, it's the great joy of my week. Now, let's start off with some lowbrow gossip. Did you see the Gilded Age? I'm calling it the Stilted Age because, boy, can I just say I was, as I am right now, almost struck mute at how not good it was. I was looking at saying everything from the casting to the production values. I almost felt like there should have been like overdubbing. I thought this like it was some like Bulgarian TV attempt to do a version of Downton Abbey. It's not old, old money versus new money. It's just bad money. Bad. Julian Fellows is better than this. He's a god among men. I don't know where this all went so terribly awry, but it's just the whole thing felt so flat. To me, it was like dinner at a three-star Michelin restaurant. Like, seems okay, bite by bite, but the whole thing together is just way too much. Yeah, just so two-dimensional. It lacked any of the nuance and or even just the way it was filmed. Just the stilted age. That's my head on that. Our poor listeners probably come to a podcast thinking that we might have some insight on, you know, Justice Breyer or the situation in Ukraine or even coronavirus. Nope, guys, sorry. Like, this is news to us, okay? We got to talk about the Gilded Age. And Michael, while we're on the subject of all things gold, let's go on over to London for just a minute because there's a breaking news situation happening at the Wolseley. The Wolseley. One of my favorite restaurants in London. I'm sure yours as well, right? It's my happy place. I only ate there twice on my last trip. Not everyone's as fortunate as us to eat at one of the world's great restaurants, but tell us what the Wolseley is and why it's the subject of so much gossip right now. The Wolseley is the crown jewel of the Corbin and King hospitality empire. Every night, or so it seems, it's presided over by an elegantly attired and always charming gentleman by the name of Jeremy King. Jeremy is the impresario of dining in London. He and his partner, Chris Corbin, first came onto the scene with Le Caprice in 1981. And in 1990, they opened the Ivy, which has been a tremendously popular restaurant for the past 30 years. But in 2003, they took over the soaring space at 160 Piccadilly, and that became the Wolseley, which is an all-day brasserie and restaurant that really exemplifies grand European dining at its finest. You can see everyone from Nigella Lawson to Kira Knightley to even Edward Eden Foley, editor of Vogue. In a city that's full of private clubs, it is almost a public-facing private club where you can go and just not only people watch, but have great food. I mean, he's got some of the best restaurants, as you said, the Ivy, Jay Shiki, the Caprice, which he sold some years ago, but then he rebooted again. He brought along Delani, Colbert, and Brasserie Zadel, which is great if you want some good schnitzel. But yes, the problem now is his company has been placed into administration by Minor International, which is a Thai holding company that has an interest in it. And it's led to some misunderstanding around London among the many fans of the restaurant that it's closing. Well, the whole thing is shutting down. But as Jeremy says this week to Damien Whitworth, it is not. In fact, Minor International as well has come out very clearly in his statements that the restaurants will not close. So that's good news, right? Yeah. Don't panic, listeners. Don't panic. The Wolseley is still open for business. And administration is, in fact, kind of a strong term for what this is. Jeremy and his investors thought that they were all on the same page. Turns out they weren't. And Jeremy had a loan that was due to his investors that he wasn't quite ready to pay back, it seems. But that's kind of par for the course in the restaurant business, especially in the middle of a pandemic when restaurants have been closed for a good part of the past two years. So this is no surprise at all. But this, to me, seems much more like a classic battle for control versus 
is a real financial meltdown. So the Wolseley's still open for business. Jeremy's there. He'll take good care of you. He always does. And I would recommend the Kedgeri. I had a chance to interview him some years ago and meet him a number of times, but I think he's got to be one of the warmest, kindest, most welcoming men in London in terms of a hospitality world. And don't take my word for it. Take, for instance, I mean, everyone who's been there and who loves him. So, but I think my favorite detail in the story this week is Jeremy, actually, one of his valued customers was Lucien Freud, the great painter who dined there very often. And in fact, Freud loved him so much that he asked Jeremy to pose for him as for a painting. But on the day that Freud's death was announced, they draped his table in black cloth, which was I find very poignant and very moving. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy King is the picture of elegance and style. He's also the consummate gentleman. I just don't like the idea of anything bad happening to this guy because all he does is bring happiness into the world for those of us who dine at the Wolseley. So Jeremy, sending you all of our love. Please let us know if there's anything we can do and we will see you at our usual table the next time we're in town. So speaking of hospitality and boldface names, Ashley, and this time of year, I know it's January. I know it's bleak, I know, but like in February, everyone starts to think about, especially in New York, uh, about the midwinter break and where they're going to go and what they're going to do. You know, one place that you shouldn't be going that I think everyone thinks is really cool, but according to Mark Elwood in this week's issue, is no longer cool. Florida? Close. The island of Moustique, where Princess Margaret once partied naked, has lost its luster, as Mark reports, to Bequia, the small island about a stone's throw away from it. And as he's calling it, it's the Moustique misstep. And this Caribbean island, as I said, was almost like the tropical version of the Great Gatsby's East Egg, this devil-may-care playground for the charming and the charmed. Mick Jagger, Mary Wells, David Bowie have all flocked there, lured by Colin Tennant, who was this fantastically connected Pied Piper-like real estate developer. But, as he reports, over the past few years, a combination of things has sort of led the cool class to skip out and leave it behind. And they say it's become less of the island of yes and more the island of no. And one Long-time visitor says it's more got the vibe of a prissy New York co-op where people are saying no to things and where this formerly louche world is now sort of where everyone wants to regulate everything. And so I'm saying, Ashley, I know you're a fan of the midwinter break for the school. I just hope you're not going to Mystique. No, honey, I went to Mystique once. Look, I wasn't partying naked like Princess Margaret, but I didn't really get it. I think if you're a homeowner there, like perhaps a royal or Tommy Hilfiger and you have a massive estate, it's all well and good. But as a tourist, there's only like one hotel on the island. There's nowhere to have dinner. It's kind of beautiful, but kind of boring. I think I read like three novels there over the course of five days. So it was a win on the literary front. But I love this story from Mark. It's everyone wants to be where the party's happening, right? And I feel like in Mystique, the parties are usually happening behind the gates, right? Out on the private beaches and in the private dining rooms. But it's not so much a communal vibe. So great story from Mark. I'm very curious to check out Bequia. Speaking of partying naked... Full disclosure or whatever you want to say here, I have never seen the subject of this story, but some of you may have watched it, some of you may not. It is a videotape that came out in 1996 that you can basically credit with Al Gore says he invented the internet. That may be true, but this videotape, and it was a videotape back then, viewable on VCRs, basically sort of 
exploded the internet. It was the first time that people sort of went to the web in search of something. Michael, are you talking about the original version of the Kim Kardashian and Ray J sex tape that was resurfaced this week? No, that was way after this. I'm talking about the 1995 Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape, which now you think I'm being like in the gutter bringing this up, but no, I'm bringing it up because Disney has, along with Hulu, turned it into a limited series. So Walt Disney has now gotten into IP that involves sex tapes from the mid-90s. That's cool. But it is it tells the story of how this sex tape was stolen from their house, and it predated all those sex tapes with Hulk Hogan, Tanya Harding, Paris Hilton, everyone else. It didn't necessarily start the internet, but it certainly jump-started, attracting countless new users. Yeah, this is a great story for a lot of reasons. But like, first of all, there's a Tanya Harding sex tape. Has anyone seen that? I haven't. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Tommy and Pam one? No. Now that you're talking about it, I'm kind of curious. Maybe I'll try to go track it down. Apparently it's on Disney Plus or something. Yeah, no, this is a great story. And it's one of those stories that seems like such a small little thing, like, you know, a sex tape from some D-list celebrities, but it turns out that it actually had major ramifications in the development of the internet. Who knew? So it is going to go down in history for different reasons than perhaps we might have divined at the start of it. Yeah, my favorite um, quote in here for, in George Kalidrakis' story, but as Pam Anderson said a while ago, watch it live with Andy Cohen, said, this is not a sex tape. It was a compilation of vacations that we were naked on. Fascinating. <laughs> so the miniseries is called, for those of you who don't want to watch the original sex tape, but want to watch the drama around it, you can watch Pam and Tommy on Hulu. And episode one is titled Drilling and Pounding. Thanks, Disney. It stars Lily James and Sebastian Stan playing the respective roles. Must-see TV. More interesting than The Gilded Age, I'm going to fathom. Yeah, I think it's a little more less uh, frumpy and less buttoned up and a little more just right out there. Intrigue. What would Julian Fellows have made of it? That'd be an interesting cross-pollination. I'd watch that. By the way, didn't Pam Anderson just get divorced for like the fifth time? Yeah, so at least she knows what she doesn't want. The fact that I know that is a sign that I spend way too much time reading the tabloids. By the way, I just have to talk about this for like 23 seconds. Okay, like Kanye West and Julia Fox at the couture shows in Paris is giving me life. Well, yeah. I mean, if you saw her at Chaparelli, it was bonkers. But I think I'm tuning in for that show. It's pretty great, right? Don't you remember when he first started going to the shows at Fashion Week? And he went to more shows than like the critics for Women's Wear Daily at the time. I mean, he truly went to like 30 shows a day. He was sitting front row talking to everyone. He was this very bizarre acolyte of fashion. And it's like 15 years later, he's still doing the same thing, except now with the serious piece of worm candy. Yeah, but I also think like he's dressing her right? He's picking out exactly what he wants her to wear. And I think he's got amazing taste in terms of picking out what she should in styling her. That's how I see it. Am I wrong? Maybe there's real emotion there, Michael. Maybe they're really in love. You know, they start going out together and all of a sudden they're giving interviews to magazines and doing photo shoots for magazines and doing interviews about their love affair. And like, there's some cheese in my refrigerator that's older than this relationship. And yet these guys are dominating the news cycle. I mean, it's a PR coup for the ages. Who knows, Michael? Maybe he'll run for president in 2024 and actually win. Stranger things have happened. All right, Michael, for film and television lovers, we have a very special guest here today. Tell us all about it. So, actually, we're very lucky here this week because we've got a, for me, a mesmerizing story courtesy of one of the smartest movie writers around, Michael Schrago. And it details what I always call Francis Ford Coppola's other, other, 
other, other masterpiece. If you consider Apocalypse Now, Godfather 1, and Godfather 2, there's a film he did in 1974 where he was actually competing against Godfather 2 at the Academy Awards. It's called The Conversation. It stars Gene Hackman. It is probably one of the most suspenseful movies you can see. It also presaged a lot of the surveillance culture we live in. And Michael is here this week to tell us about a new restoration of it and why this film is must-viewing for all of us. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, very good to be here. And a delight to talk about the conversation. We forget, 1974, Francis Ford Coppola had the conversation. He had The Godfather Part Two in the same year. He had a credit on the screenplay for The Great Gatsby. And actually, his screenplay is a masterpiece, unlike the finished movie. <laughs> so we're talking about a guy who's incredibly productive at the top of his game. And he's doing a movie that he will later think is one of the few times he was able to do what he actually thought was his role as a filmmaker, which was develop original screenplays and direct them as opposed to adapting. And we can argue about whether Coppola should have stuck to adapting because he's such a great adapter. But The Conversation is really a unique movie in American movies. The Conversation tells what's it really has become an archetypal story of our time. It's about a guy who is a surveillance genius and is absolutely paranoid about keeping every part of his life private. And yet he turns out in the, that in the developing culture that he himself generate himself, there is no privacy. He himself, the master bugger, can be bugged. And this is tied up with a plot that involves a murder, a mysterious corporation, our inability to tell who's who in a plot just from the external clues that were given. So it speaks to a lot of things that then became prominent, not just in the culture, but in specifically other movies. And there's also a kind of secret hero of this film on the production side. And I'm just going to set this up because it's fascinating. So, I mean, just for our listeners, go back in time, imagine this. You're Francis Ford Coppola. You are in production on Godfather 2 and you're shooting the conversation and he still has 78 scenes to film out of 400 and he simply says I can't do it anymore I've got to go to Godfather 2 and he walks off the set and basically the film stops shooting right? Yes, yes. I mean, there's a reason for this, too. Yeah, that's exactly the story. And the reason was he shut the production down for two or three weeks. I mean, 10 production days officially, because he had a disagreement with this cameraman who was legendary cameraman, Haskell Wexler, who had just come off shooting in the heat of the night, Thomas Crown Affair. You know, it was a friend of Coppola's and Lucas's. But whether it was a disagreement with Francis or with his production designer, Dean Tavilaris, Francis said he had to make a change. And one thing that Walter Murch, who became his editor on this film as well as the sound designer told me was that part of the problem was this agonized mood on the set that Gene Hackman, who is remarkable in the film, I mean, he does seemingly so little from shot to shot. And yet by the end, you're just incredibly blown away by how tragic this like slender figure is. He was agonized on the set. He really felt uh, he had nothing external to uh, demonstrate his character with. And it was, he did it tremendously well, but it was that and the disagreements with Haskell had led to a really gloomy, <laughs> downbeat mood that Coppola tried to correct, not just by substituting cinematographers and putting in Bill Butler, who'd later shoot uh, Jaws, but by also just breaking it up, shutting down the production, giving everyone a breath. And the uh, bad part of that was he couldn't shoot 78 scenes. <laughs> so then that you identified Walter Murch. Tell us about the legend of and the genius of Walter Murch. Walter Murch is just the acknowledgement 
acknowledged uh, genius of sound design, but also an incredible editor, picture editor. And then as the production progressed and it hit these snags and had to be shut down for uh, at least 10 days, and then he ran out of money and time to shoot 78 scenes that were supposed to help tie the film together... (laughs) He basically went off to keep doing the script and pre-production on F-5-8-2 and said, Walter, you take care of it. (laughs) See how it cuts together. And Walter said, okay. (laughs) Speaks to both his skills as a sound designer and an editor. He basically did two things. There's one film, I don't want to give any spoilers away if you haven't seen the film because it's really suspenseful and it really takes you by surprise. But there's one line that we hear over and over again in the film, which is, he'd kill us if he got the chance. Walter actually was not satisfied with the way the sound was recorded on location initially. So he took Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest to play the two characters involved in who knows, it could be a marital plot, it could be a corporate assassination plot. That's one of the beauties of the movie is we never really know. But these two people are talking, Frederick Forrest says that line to her, to Cindy Williams. It didn't come out on the location shoot, so Walter took them to another city square similar to Union Square, where it was shot a couple of miles to the west in a quieter place, recorded him over and over again saying that. One of them, he heard him say, emphasize a different word. He said, he'd kill us if he got the chance. And he thought, oh, well, that's a mistake, but I have enough good takes. <laughs> I'll go back. And in the middle of trying to figure out how to tie this plot together, he realizes if he uses that take at a crucial point, it's going to completely convey what pages and pages of the script unshot script would have done. Then we really have everything clear. So he made one shot, one pick, he designed one pickup shot that they did to compensate for all this other stuff. And they filmed it in Paramount in LA. And Walter told me if they moved the camera from filming this one pickup shot of a guy messing with some tapes and reels to the left, we'd see Roman Polanski and Jack Nicholson asking to get their camera back for Chinatown. <laughs> so It's a great moment. You have a pickup shot just in it for non-film heads. It's basically a shot they finished filming, as we've said, and they've got to cobble together one last shot because like we realize it's almost like saying to a writer, can you write a paragraph that goes right here that does this? But a writer is easy. But if you need a making a film, so they've got to beg and borrow right? They go into a corner of a soundstage, as you reveal. They're in the corner of the soundstage of another film, which is Chinatown. They're either using their camera and their films. It's just bananas, right? Yeah, I just love that story that it ties together these two tremendous productions going on in 1974, Chinatown, the conversation. And also these two greats, Coppola and Polanski, one reason that may have been possible that they begged for a little space to do this is that Polanski and Coppola were actually quite friendly. And in fact, I believe Coppola named Rowan Coppola his son after Rowan Polanski, so, which I didn't realize until after I had this conversation with Walton. It's this great sense of this kind of fraternity of filmmakers we had at that era that were trying to do audience movies that were also just really fascinating and experimental movies. Anyway. It's amazing. On another level is we're used to film as a visual medium. And this is probably the first film you'll ever encounter where it prioritizes listening over watching, right? And just really paying attention to what's being said and not said, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And one of the inspirations was Blow Up, the Antonioni film, which at the time was such a tremendous influence on young moviegoers and hip audiences. And that was about a photographer getting a sense of a murder being committed through the repetition of seeing a series of photographs. Coppola's idea was to base this whole movie on the conversation that Gene Hackman records at the beginning, at the very beginning of the movie, and through the constant repetition of him trying to figure out what's going on, that's where the source of the suspense is. It really is a reflection 
both of Coppola's genius and of Murch's. And I give Coppola full credit because this is what a director does, especially a theatrical impresario director like Coppola was at that moment. I mean, he does delegate brilliantly to the people who can fulfill his dream. And Walter will always give Coppola just absolute primary credit for the inspiration for all these elements of the film. The other thing that's great about discovering this movie, the cast. I mean, not only we talked about Hackman, it does, it's like one of the great minimalist performances in movies. But you see Terry Garr, who's wonderful in like one scene as his kept mistress. You see Harrison Ford, who is just terrific as this guy who we don't even know what his role is in this corporation, but he is the, it seems to be the right-hand man and the go-between between Hackman and this man and the director, this guy who is played by Robert Duvall. And we have John Cazale again, who is going to go and continue his role as Fredo in The Godfather as Hackman's assistant. I mean, this cast, Ford especially to me, was a tremendous to see him again, see what a great character actor he was and could have been before he became this big star. Every, every moment of the conversation, to tell you the truth, is a discovery. And one thing that was chastening to me was it just brought me back how spoiled we were in that period. Well, the only thing lacking here, Michael, mm-hmm. you just don't have any enthusiasm for it. <laughs> this conversation has just been so flat. I just, well, I don't know why anyone listening would want to watch it immediately. <laughs> yeah, I love watching you two guys go back and forth about it. It's like you've got two film aficionados who just can't, you guys should have your own podcast, All Things Coppola. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It'll make you think. And it's opening up now around the country, right, Michael? Yeah, it'll be in LA this coming week, San Francisco the week after that, other cities. Yeah, it's going to do the whole art house independent theater route. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here and bringing the enthusiasm and the perspective and the insights. We hope to have you back. Okay. Great to be here. Thank you. Again. Thanks bye-bye. again. Bye, Michael. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, I feel like we've talked about every movie and television show currently streaming on Netflix, but Michael, before we go off gently into this good weekend, tell me anything to recommend. I got a few things to recommend. I first want to ask you a question because it comes from something that Jonathan Margolis recommends our, our Inspector Gadget, our who knows all things tech and gear. Do you do you know about the um, the Aura Ring? Is this like the new Fitbit? I think I've read about this. This is the new. You may have recently seen it on the hand of Kendall Roy in Succession, but it's quickly become gained fans from Kim Kardashian to Gwyneth Paltrow. And if they're into it, everyone should be into it. But it is gets takes in all of your health data, and it's become. The hot new thing, everyone from Jack Dorsey to Mark Benioff are reported to be Aura users. So I was just wondering if you've tried it because you're way ahead of these things. No, I haven't because I have a Fitbit and it looks horrible and it's very effective. But so I wear my Fitbit. So I don't feel like I need the Aura ring. Although like the Aura ring looks better, but also I would never wear that as a piece of jewelry. I'm kind of a snob about those things. So I really don't see it making its way into my wardrobe. But if Jonathan is a fan then so am I. Okay, then I'm going to go into my two recommends this week. One, another one actually comes from Jonathan, and it is, speaking of film, and which has been one of the themes of the show this week, is there's a great app called Vintage 8, number 8-MM, Vintage 8 Millimeter app, and it replicates, if you're of a certain generation, what 
eight-millimeter home movie film used to do, which I always like for its warmth and its vividness and its sort of the jittiness. So get it if you want to sort of goof around with or make something that's a little more authentic. I would highly recommend that. And my second is a film. It came out last year, and I guess I'm, like many of you, discovering films that got theatrical releases last year and then just sort of faded away and because of the way we theaters were being punished by COVID and many of us are uncomfortable. But did you know about this film, Coda? I heard about it, but I forgot why. Tell me. Well, it won the, at Sundance, when it screened it last year, 2021, it won the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award. And it is on playing on Apple Plus, which got in a big, big more. They paid $25 million for it. It is the coming of age drama. And you know, in this sort of season where I feel like so many of the films that we're talking about, they're just about sad people. It's Benedict Cumberbatch as a sad cowboy. We have a sad Diana. We have Olivia Coleman as a sad mother. This is a movie that I'm just going to tell you, I went all in on emotionally. It is the coming of age. It stars a very promising young actress named Amelia Jones, but it also has Marley Matlin. And it's a remake of a French film. It's about a family of deaf adults. CODA stands for Child of Deaf Adults. And this young woman, Amelia Jones, is the daughter of two parents and the sister of a brother, all three of whom are deaf or hearing impaired. And she wants to become a singer. And her high school teacher recognizes her talent, trains her, and yet she then has to sort of decide if she's going to go on this route or which means leaving her family behind, but also which would have implications on their fishing business as they're a small little boat that fishes off of Gloucester, Mass. And it just, it's a beautiful story. I was moved by it. I admit I'm a sucker. If I were watching this on a plane, I would have been sobbing as I usually do on a plane movie, let alone I was at home. I already got choked up. So really enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much for that. And you, my dear? Once again, we're going to talk about restaurants. Our listeners know that we are perennially out and about checking out the latest restaurants in New York. And one of my new favorites is called Timey Love. It's a new Thai restaurant that specializes in home-style cooking from the marvelous chef Hong Timey. She's had many successful restaurants in the city uh, over the past few years, but I think this is one of her best yet. It feels like her own living room and you go in and she's always there to greet you. And it's just an incredibly special spot and her flavors are just out of this world. So it's become one of my must visits. If you come to the city, it's on Houston Street, not technically in Soho because it's on Houston, but um, it is downtown and it's very stylish and fun and it's a great place to have a great night in town. Don't even worry about ordering on the menu. Just let Chef do her thing. And Michael, will you please read us out? I'd be delighted. Good Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.